0: We had a uh, unsolicited email come into our inbox asking us to pitch on emotion recognition using the front-facing uh, camera on your cell phone uh, from a Japanese company but uh, inviting us to pitch and this was coordinated out of San Francisco uh, intermediary company so we looked at this and we said this is bizarre and uh, I, my first gut was not to necessarily trust it too much so I'm not quite sure what this is um, but we did follow up and kind of then we did a bit of our own research. We we discovered there was a very large Japanese games publisher behind this um, and a very kind of well understood intermediary in San Francisco. Um, and so we applied and then they, we got shortlisted and then invited us through to San Francisco to demo our solution. You know it, it was an interesting experience going from that from start of saying oh this is Asking us to pitch in on this and then applying and being one of five companies, the other four, you know, spread out from, from the rest of the world, UK, two out of the US, um, and us out of Cape Town. a very really small team at that time, demoing what we could do with computer vision as a realm of AI.
1: Hey there. Welcome to this week's episode of Breaking Out. I'm your host, Jared Lazar. Ever wondered what it takes to step outside of a traditional job or career and chase your dreams? Let's find out. Each week, I'll be interviewing inspiring guests who've done something unconventional and created an interesting, novel, or unusual career for themselves. On this episode, Franz Kronier talks us through how a degree in actuarial science led him to co founding Data Profit one of South Africa's leading AI companies. Dataprofit develops machine learning solutions, which enable producers to significantly increase production efficiency. Dataprofit was one of 56 companies worldwide listed on the World Economic Forum's list of most promising tech pioneers of 2019, and France himself has been invited to present at the World Economic Forum in Davos. To add to a very long list of awards and notable achievements, Data Profit was also named by CB Insights in 2020 as one of the 100 most promising AI startups in the world, and was the only African company on that list. Franz, I've really been looking forward to chatting to you for, for quite some time, uh, and really thanks so much for taking the time out to, to join us. Uh, how are you?
0: I'm good. Thank, thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here.
1: Awesome. Um, so I guess let's get right into it. Data Profit. As I said in my in my introduction, the the business is an AI and and machine learning company. I'm sure you get this a lot. How would you explain the business to to a layperson? Imagine our listeners knew nothing about AI.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean both both sides of the equation are fairly complex. We're applying AI to manufacturing processes and kind of neither are are sparse and just the degree of complexity that go into them. Uh, but I think the the best way to think about the work that we do is, in every factory in the world, they're running on what is effectively a recipe, and it's the same recipe we might follow to, you know, uh, bake a cake. Except for them, they're trying to make a car, or they're trying to make a tire on an engine block, or you know, it might be fish meal, aluminium, you know, what what have you. Uh, but if they if they follow that recipe correctly and they get everything right, uh, that final product is good. Right. And they always want to make sure that their final product is good. Um, and they'll check it at the end of the, the manufacturing line to make sure that it's good. Right. So they never ship anything, try their best not to ship anything that's defective. Um, but uh, you know they don't want to, to fall into a state where they're making a lot of bad cakes because then they're wasting their time, they're losing money, all of that. Right. And so where we come in is we say, uh, you know, you're following this recipe, you've got all of these parameters in your production process, uh, but the space that you're working in is very complex, right? You're melting down iron, you're pouring it into a sand mould, and if you're doing that all correctly, you've got a good engine block at the end of the line. Um, but it is a bit more complex than making, making a kick. And so we say, tell us what your machines are seeing, what they're thinking, what they're sensing. So what is the temperature on that machine? What is the pressure that it's running under? Um, and let us know what you know the temperature of today is and uh, all of those components give us access to that data, gives us access to that quality data, that inspector that's looking at that product. and then we'll learn from that data using the AI that we have to help better inform the recipe uh, that you need to follow today. And so you can think about it, bringing it back to that cake analogy is that, you're baking a cake and you know today's maybe an astronomically hot day um, and maybe you've got a little bit less flour than you needed according to that recipe how do you make changes to your recipe uh, such that your cake even though those conditions are happening your cake at the end of the day is still as good as you wanted it right so that's how we help them we say make this change to your recipe in their context they might be making an engine block Um, make this change to your recipe uh, and in doing that uh, you're going to finish with a better quality engine block and we're going to keep telling you that and that's the nature of the intelligence is that we can do that now for every engine block or every unit of production we can make a small change to the recipe and ensure that what they've got is is really good
1: and, and just on that i it recently learned about this concept of industry 4.0 i think some people are referring to it as the the fourth industrial revolution div- just from what you've said to me, this seems to be, a, it underpins the, the business and what you're trying to achieve. It's this marrying of the digital and, and the physical realm to you know, drive efficiencies and improve manufacturing. What's your perspective on that and, and the future? And, and where do you see AI and machine learning um, driving our society forward? And I guess more, more directly, where, where's Data Profit's role in all of that?
0: So, so there, there are a couple of big uh, themes within that. I mean AI, as you said, is one of the core pillars of industry 4.0. it's there's a realization just that of that there's an immense amount of value in the data that's being produced in, in various different environments beyond just necessarily the manufacturing space, so the finance, you know retail, um, social media all of those have huge data streams and is there value that we can we can find and use in it Our narrow focus is in the manufacturing space. Um, it's a fascinating environment, it's got a vast volume of data produces the most data when compared to any of the other sectors, but it kind of sits quietly um, uh, in kind of the unknown space. right? And so, where we come into it, uh, where, where we like to influence and, and bring a lot of our thinking, um, is into that production environment saying, okay, you've got this quite this expensive industrial machinery, you've got all of these quality processes. You've been building this data for compliance reasons, right? You've been building this data to keep your, your environment in control. But now let's take this data and say, actually, if we allow the data to drive the process, what additional value can we find here? Right? What additional things can we perform with that data that you hadn't previously imagined, right? Um, and so this is where we come into these production processes in integrating and bringing all the data together quality, the process data uh, we, we're attaching data from various different machinery, sources, etc uh, to build up this view that we can then present information and uh, you know the, the the key parts and a lot of what we emphasize is that none of the work we do is valuable unless you can take an action upon it and unless an action is taken upon it right um, because you can provide all the information in the world but if you don't take action upon it, uh, you know, you're not creating value. And so we've got to take all of that data, we've got to provide the, find the information that's valuable, uh, that informs that decision, then action is taken upon it and presented back to that that operator, that user. Um, and uh, kind of a big part of this is also bringing that user, the operator, along for the ride, uh, because they've got to ultimately trust uh, some of the, the feedback we provide, right? We think that the work we're doing in this space, in Industry 4.0, and specifically in production and manufacturing environments, is relatively novel. Uh, We haven't seen the wide application of the specific techniques that we use. We're not going to dive too deep into those techniques, but um, we're seeing them beginning to deliver on what we term some of the promises of AI. And what I mean by that is kind of AI, when you look at it from a media perspective, um, is almost left to the imagination a lot of the the reader, right? And obviously, come kind of for AI that then begins to look okay. Is this human intelligence? Or is this is this something else? And and more often than not, people construe it to be something that's a human-like intelligence. The reality is we're very far away from that. Uh, the human brain is this fast, quite complex organ that uh, computers are, you know, decades away from in terms of beginning to simulate. Right and. Uh, So, when we think about AI, it's much more narrow in its application, uh, but it is beginning to deliver on one of the promises, which is we can build an algorithm, we can apply it to different environments. And that, to me, is similar to what intelligence promises, where you can take an intelligent uh, being and apply them, you know, put them into different environments and they can find solutions.
1: You've accomplished so much in your life so far and and up until this point i'm i'm very curious what, what was life like growing up for you uh, you know where does the the journey begin for franz grenier yeah, yeah. okay i mean uh, first
0: things so i've
1: still got a lot to accomplish <laughs> um <laughs> so, so
0: it's a journey's not done <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> Um, and I certainly don't look back too often, but I think kind of where life starts. Kind of, I've I've been extremely lucky. Um, kind of through family, through friends, uh, through kind of my own set of privileges. I've recognised, you know, uh, my father. He runs his own business. It's kind of almost been baked into assumption and bred into to, through kind of nurture.
1: So, so there was always there was always kind of that entrepreneurial sparkle yeah, inclination. there's thing.
0: a certain fearlessness when you when you see your parents running their own work, yeah. right? That kind of I've been fortunate to have and exposed to. Where, uh, you know, day to day, as 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 I'm talking to to my parents and understanding the business that they ran, a uh, very different space, uh, furniture manufacturing, but it's something they built uh, from the ground up, ran. Right? and so. I I think I am I as an individual has just been subject to less fear in terms of starting something of my own, uh, just because I have seen and lived through some of the realities of it.
1: So, so was that always the the goal in for you? I guess um, you went to UCT and and the University of Cape Town and studied actuarial science, which which we can get into, but was it always part of the plan that your degree and whatever you would study would ultimately lead you to starting your own business
0: not not necessarily at the undergraduate level so so it's it's a good question as to kind of when i started developing upon this idea yeah um at an undergraduate level i certainly kind of made uh, some naive decisions I (laughs) mathematics i enjoyed business and so you add those two together, you often land in actual science. And I think you find a lot of factories in that space. <laughs> um, and so I did that degree. I certainly kind of uh, lamented the fact of, of maybe not studying something in the engineering space or the, the computer science space, um, but enjoyed the statistical side of, of what actual science proves. Enjoyed the challenge of it. I mean, I, my, I've always been relatively strong in, in kind of mathematics um, and those elements. And so... I enjoyed that challenge when presented in natural science. And I think, I think where the seeds of all of this start is within my honours project, where we're given quite a wide uh, scope as to what set of projects we should work upon. Correct. And I was fortunate to find some work within um, a set of theory called Bayesian networks which is just kind of from a principled and maybe you a philosophical point of view, quite an interesting field to tackle. It's a, you know, when you look at statistics, a lot of what we think and understand statistics as is frequentist statistics. So that's counting and, and uh, running tests and rerunning and rerunning and rerunning until you get some sample size, things like that uh Beijing kind of takes a little bit more of a belief-based model understanding kind of belief propagates through things and it's interesting just looking at the even the jargon that is used in that field um where uh, it's kind of trying to reason with uncertainty uh, right. but using kind of very human terms such as belief and uh, belief through networks and propagation and understanding what your algorithm believes Right.
1: So at at what point did you meet your your co-founder, uh, Daniel yeah. Schwarzkopf?
0: So so co-founders got 2 two co-founders, Daniel Schwarzkopf, Richard Craig. Um, yeah. by pure coincidence, we we're actually all in first year of mathematics, but that's right. not where we met, right? Okay. Um, so after finishing my honors in natural science, having completed that project, I went on to do a bit of work at a management consultancy obviously their names are, aren't great right now uh, in South African context, but I did a lot of work with uh, Bain and Company. really fascinating kind of I uh, thoroughly enjoyed the experience. I was exposed to a lot of private equity in that environment. Um, learned a lot about working hard um, harder <laughs> than the natural science. Um, and so enjoyed that experience but did certainly kind of get towards the you know get into it and then kind of uh, pull my head up for air. And say this is a fascinating career, I'd be quite comfortable here, but I'm relatively young, comfortable taking a set of risks right now and trying something. And I'd like to be a little bit more specialized than kind of the generalist that the, the consultant of it is.
1: Right. right.
0: Um, and it's it's still kind of highly recommend just having that experience. But um, what I, I then felt necessary to do was to go and study my masters. And so I returned to UCT. I um, was fortunate to find kind of a, a great supervisor who was relatively lenient in terms of me picking a topic. Right, so he allowed me to explore a bunch of different ideas. I said, "Look, I, I'm interested in AI. I think this as a technology uh, is going to be relevant going forward." Um, and this was back in back in about 2011. Um, and I've been then incredibly lucky that just with the timing of that, because in that uh, period of time. Those initial results out of uh, deep learning, that new field of AI, yeah. were coming to the fore. Right? Like simply, there was a lab based out of the University of Toronto that competed in that ImageNet competition I mentioned earlier, a classification of objects and images. It was a long-standing competition. This team that competed out of the University of Toronto, this is their first year of competing, and they beat out all of the existing comp- uh, competition by quite a large margin. And they, they said, look, we don't understand image classification. We haven't studied it, but what we've studied is an algorithm that can then develop that idea independently of ourselves. And that uh, was just that movement in results, is something really occasioned in uh, the academic world. A lot of the time, there's kind of a slow and steady improvement in, in results, but not these sudden steps. And so I looked at that and I said, that's something I'd really want to do within my master's a change my topic, to, focused on that. And in the second year of all of our masters, I met uh, Richard, right? We collaborated through a series of projects on just uh, competitions that were applying this type of technology. This is where you know, the, the great sites like Kaggle and things like that, which open source some competitions. We did a couple, we teamed up with uh, one or two of the other members of staff in university and other projects as well. Yeah. Um, and then Richard introduced uh, myself uh, to Daniel, and kind of the three of us built something of a very simple hypothesis, which formed the genesis of data profit, which was to say, we believe that this field, AI, more narrowly machine learning, is going to be relevant and important in the future. Uh, we understand the theory behind it, um, but we don't know the specific industry application. Sure. Um, and we think as a team we can we can consult into industry, develop that industry experience, um, and then develop a a business around it that was centered on a, uh, serving a set of products to to the space. Uh, kind of very much a test and learn.
1: Yeah. What What's interesting for me about that is is you say that you knew the theory, but what I'm getting is that you know the the actual. The content of, of machine learning and, and AI, that sounds like it was not something that was taught to you at, at university. You, you didn't take classes to learn these skills. This was kind of you taking this interest in, in a particular subject matter and then, I guess, just being curious about it and learning.
0: Yeah, 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 absolutely. Like, it, it was a matter of um, the technology, the the set of resources. It was just a point of interest. My, my master's was entirely research-based so no and yeah. a coursework. I just focused on that. And I think a lot of the, the early team members in Data profit were also very interesting in the sense that this is something that had caught their eye. They were in positions that they were fortunate enough that they could study further towards it. And then they did, right? And simply, point of interest, they think that this is going to be important going forward. And so they're focused in and, you know, um, kind of especially some of the early joiners, of the, uh, the initial team were
1: self-taught. What I often hear VCs say is when they're investing in an early stage company, they're they're really looking to back the founders rather than the the business itself necessarily. What was it like in the early days and and what role did it play for for you having the three of you um, kind of being involved and and having this strong interest in the business? And, And do you think that that was a strong factor in where the business is today?
0: Yeah, I think each of us brought different things to the, the space, right? Um, and so that definitely definitely influenced a little bit of where the business went, right? Uh, we, we all had quite strong ambitions as to what we wanted to achieve with the business. Um, and so that almost kind of set the pace. Uh, and then I think our initial grounding also just set us in a place where, where we'd approach Industry, very humbly, knowing that we, we didn't know the specific pain points that they'd uh, need to serve, knowing that we'd go into this work, you know, work closely with them to understand their problems and then try and bring what we know into it, right, bring that theory to them rather than uh, trying to fit them to, to the the AI, which often we see occurs whereby of AI is, is solving these great problems in research, but it's almost a solution without a problem. Right. Um, and so we wanted to make sure that we match that properly. And I think part of that initial approach that we that initial founding hypothesis was uh, to work in a pattern that said let us understand the problem first deeply, and then then bring what we know to it.
1: And I guess that makes a lot of sense. I, I read somewhere that in the early days, at least, Data Profit started out as a as a consultancy. Service, if if I'm correct, yep. I almost feel like that would have given you the time to understand, you know, where there was demand from clients and how viable potentially the, the product or the service was. Do you think yep. that's fair?
0: Yeah, it's absolutely like that. That was that was the approach we said. Uh, we'd consult to industry, and consulting is great for initial cash flow. Um, it's great also, you know, if a customer's paying you to do, solve a problem, then right. you know they see value in it. Right. I mean that's the ultimate litmus test in all of sure. this. Um, so absolutely, we consulted to learn about the industries, uh, but we did have a view to say we consult to a point, and then we we take what we've learned and build that into a product. Right, and uh, that's that's the path that we have followed. It's kind of the, the and, and talking talking around that and looking at, at other companies, other startups in South Africa, or other startups in general. Um, it is, it is a, a strategy and a, it's a, an approach that's available to kind of founders straight out of the university and effectively we were, right? Um, right. And then there are other approaches. I mean, there are pros and cons to that. Um, and we certainly see a lot of startups in South Africa actually spun out of large businesses where it's a group of individuals in a business, they're solving for a problem, and there's actually, uh, you know, business will solve for this problem, but in our own entity. So they start with a customer, um, being their the former employer um, and that also is quite a nice way to just to start with quite a clear product in mind right And so uh, kind of a couple of different strategies in the space. Uh, ours was to consult, identify where we could build products and then build products.
1: I. I particularly loved what you what you said earlier and and I'm just thinking back when you mentioned that growing up, you know, you had this experience of your parents were, were entrepreneurs and, and there was no fear of kind of starting your own thing. For for the three of you, the, the founders of Data Profit, it sounds like you really were pioneers in the space in South Africa and I think you mentioned at the time that there wasn't really a lot of competition in this space. What was that like? I mean, I, I, without pre-guessing your answer, like, I, I just picture myself being very fearful of, of committing time into a space where potentially you don't know if there's going to be a market for this thing in the future.
0: Yeah, that's it's a fair point. <laughs> it's, um, I mean, I think there was some, uh, you know, the, the natural characteristics of any startup founders that they're, they're willing to accept a fair bit of risk. Right. Um, We were were fairly determined that we, you know, we'd see this value be realized. Um, I think the the biggest learning I have out of it in being a pioneer is that it's it's not always a great thing. You've got to spend a lot of time educating the market. And certainly kind of most of our initial conversations were just explaining, okay, we understand your problem, this is how we're going to solve for it. And then you'd have to unpack that a couple of times to say, Okay. This is this is what AI does in the space, etc. So, uh, we've certainly been in this environment a long time, and a lot of it has been a lot of education. And now we're beginning to see the market arrive with just more almost certain questions and more mature questions, which is just an indication that they've been learning. Markets kind of getting to a place where it's growing more familiar with AI, and that's just it's a nice sign to say, okay, the early indications for. Larger market arriving and buying the product is is are becoming uh, coming to the fore.
1: I love that you that you touched on founders and and accepting a degree of risk when they're starting a, a startup because I often work with founders and, and and investors alike, and I'm just constantly amazed when I listen to these stories. And I genuinely believe that there's a specific breed of of people that can accept that level of of risk and and um, be the pioneer, as it were what's what's been the quality I guess that that you've had in yourselves and and maybe also your founder a team that's kind of helped you guys persevere you know through these times where there maybe were challenges and and so on along the way. yeah,
0: it's important for me to qualify the specific personal quality. I think yeah. in that context in in understanding risk the, there's a you have to have some appreciation for what you're willing to lose right. Um, so if everything goes wrong in those first and especially in the early years, if everything goes wrong, uh, what do you have at the end of it, right? And again, I'm I'm somewhat fortunate, so I've, I've got a, a relatively robust network of, of family, right? It's, it's if everything went wrong, and you know I'd had an undergrad in natural science, at work worked for Bain Company, had a, a postgraduate in, in stats, right? I, I was fairly comfortable that. Base case, I'd be able to find a job in 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 industry, Mm. Um, and I'd be able to recover from that perspective. And that's that's always been it. You know, that was the initial motivating factor for me to say, I'm you know over this next period of time, I'm ready to go back to effectively scratch. if everything goes wrong.
1: Did you ever get to that point? No, I, I,
0: <laughs> no, I mean, in the early years, you know, paying yourself a salary, you're kind of keeping, right, you're, right. you're going hand-to-mouth a little bit, so You're you're paying amounts out of, you know, the projects as you land them. Um, but I was we I were was, I was fortunate, and we did start in this pattern where we, we did consult initially. So consulting is great from a bringing in some amount of cash at some point, right? But yep. uh, you're certainly yep. taking quite a substantial pay cut out of what you, wish you would could uh, do in in industry. But uh, no, I was I was fortunate in that space that we didn't get there. Right? Um, yeah, you just learn learn what what you need to keep going.
1: I'm almost picturing the the early days, kind of you know, there's the typical trope of a startup being in the garage, and you guys are all kind of working with a laptop and and all of that. How do you? Reflect on the early days versus where, where you are now, but what are some of the, the things that come to mind?
0: Yeah, there's <laughs> a lot. So The early days, we were very much sharing an office. Um, one of the other founders had had uh, kind of was direct in a separate uh, business, and so we shared an office in that space. I mean, there, there were four of us around those desks um, doing the work that, that kind of principally we still enjoy today, but doing it in a very uh kind of you know as as the, as the years have gone past the tooling that we use the manner of sophistication that we approach the problems solved for them has, has gone up dramatically right um and so where there were kind of two three of us working around on problems and I can relate any number of kind of quite interesting stories and maybe <laughs> maybe to characterize this one of the more interesting experiences early on was we had a uh, unsolicited email come into our inbox asking us to pitch on emotion recognition using the front-facing uh, camera on your cell phone uh, from a Japanese company. But uh, inviting us to pitch, and this was coordinated out of a San Francisco uh, intermediary company. So we looked at this, and we said, this is bizarre. And, uh, I, my first gut was not to necessarily trust it too much. it's so like, I'm not quite sure what this is. Um, but we did follow up, and kind of then we did a bit of our own research. We, we discovered there was a very large Japanese games publisher behind this, um, and a very kind of well understood intermediary in San Francisco. Um, and so we applied, and then they, we got shortlisted, and then invited us through to San Francisco to demo our solution, which was very much custom built. Um, and and we we did all of that, and you know this accumulated or accumulated uh, you know me doing a lot of coding uh with the support of the team back in in the office while flying through to san francisco kind of fortunately quite an empty flight sitting there with two laptops uh trying to get the the system working well and propped up um and then a man a couple days before the the actual pitch itself in san francisco tidying up the demo and then us us going through for effectively what was an hour meeting uh, with this Japanese team, presenting our solution and then lucky enough to to come out in front and land mm-hmm. the work. <laughs> right. Right. Um, but it uh, kind of completes, you know, it, it, it was an interesting experience going from that from start of saying, "Oh, this is they're asking us to pitch on this and then applying and being one of five companies the other four, you know, spread out from, from the rest of the world, UK, two out of the US, um, I forget where the fourth one was, right? And us out of Cape Town, right? a really small team at that time, demoing what we could do with computer vision as a realm of AI to uh, influence emotion recognition from cameras.
1: I mean, th- that must have been massive for you, just in terms of justifying or, or kind of. You know, giving you that that fulfilment that actually, like, we're, we're onto something bigger, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, and, and you're absolutely right. It was it was a kind of validation that that we had kind of equivalent talent and skill uh, in our in our team uh, when we vetted and benchmarked ourselves against the international teams because you know we came out in the front, and that was an incredible thing for us to do. Um, and so, it certainly was a, a key point in the company's history for us to yeah. to win that piece of work, right? We went on to deliver it, uh, one of the more difficult pieces of work we had to deliver, um, <laughs> lots of different war stories out of that, uh, the client team at one point asking if we were all right, <laughs> asking after <laughs> <the help. laughs>
1: our so, yeah. I'm quite interested, when you say you, know, you were the South African or the South Africans uh, in that particular scenario, it seems to me that that almost happens to you a lot, whether it's data profit or whether it's you going to the World Economic Forum and and presenting, you're the South African and you're on the global stage. And do you ever feel, I guess, insecure about about that? And and where my question's coming from is that sometimes as South Africans, we're kind of conditioned to think small. Sometimes, you know, we're sitting on the tip of Africa, you know. Did that ever, was that ever a thing for you? I mean, I think
0: I know exactly the point that you're talking to. Um, I think one of my interesting realizations was rather with the corporate training with Bain and Company, where they flew all of the first years to a single location over in in Richmond, Virginia, U.S. Um, and we trained there with everyone who just joined the company. And it's it's initially it was fairly intimidating because you're you're amongst all of kind of the various Ivy Leagues, et cetera, et cetera flown in and you've, you know, you've come from South Africa and uh, university that you have to explain, you know, this is the university no one's heard of, it, right? Um, but quickly realised through that, that the, the training, the education that we received was equivalent, right? It was interesting where you'd keep quiet a couple of times and just kind of understand what the other was offering in terms of the answer and realise that comfortably you could have taken that. And so that was quite a nice realisation that actually we stand on kind of level ground, right? And I don't think we recognize that as easily. Um, and, and I mean, in many ways, our, our tertiary education is actually t- t- uh, really good in that regard, right? Um, it's, it does kind of push us quite hard um, to, to achieve various kind of quite difficult things. And I, I think what we are recognized around the world for is, is South Africans do work quite hard um, when they solve fault problems. Right. Um, and so I understand exactly what you're getting to. Yes, I think we, we do understand ourselves as a, mm-hmm. as, a, as a group, but we shouldn't.
1: On a personal note, just to take a change of tack, um, in terms of setting goals and, and milestones and, and things that you kind of work towards, how do you go about that? Is there, is there a particular process that you that you kind of go through where you think, okay, well, you know, this is a sensible goal for me to achieve both personally and also I guess for for the business. Um or is it organic and, and kind of develops as, as time passes on. Um because these obviously need to be flexible and and to to kind of be uh to, to adjust to the circumstances. And uh yeah, I, I just I just wonder about that. My my point being that, you know, in other careers, there is sometimes a path that's laid in front of you yeah. whereas for the founder of a business there there isn't necessarily that
0: yeah i I mean i wouldn't i wouldn't call them goals and objectives but i would call a purpose right if nothing else like there's there's not a specific thing that you're achieving like a career path it's not a specific promotion but there's kind of a purpose Right, and a lot of my kind of set of things that when i look around to say okay well what is the company achieving what is its own objectives do those align with the kind of purpose i'm trying to achieve and a lot of what'm I'm, I'm kind of personally trying to work towards is one, I think they they're determined to see AI developed correctly, right as best we understand correct uh, in this context. So so delivering making sure it delivers value, making sure it's not overstated, uh, making sure that it you know isn't um, just a series of if loops right So kind of some naive implementation of a basic thing being passed off as AI making sure that it's being played in the right space. And I think that's that's important just at a global level, that there are multiple independent teams working to solve upon this problem. Uh, because the moment you just have a single team or concentrated mass solving on a problem, you find that you, you narrow in on a specific solution without exploring and finding novel things. And then I think the second one is a little bit to your formal point, demonstrating the capacity, uh, the talent that we have here on an international level. We we present and we demonstrate ourselves globally when we talk to the rest of the world, but we know kind of the core competence, the core ability uh, as a South African team. So if if we're successful internationally, I'd also be uh,
1: happy. Right, right. And as a South African AI business, what are some of the challenges or, or maybe things that you think need to be Done to develop the space in order for a business like Data Profit to um, to develop and, and to grow onto the the global stage. Of course, your business has has done that. Um, do you think we are kind of how far behind are we compared to perhaps other places in the world in, in that respect?
0: Seven eight years, no one was behind anyone because the field had just started again. Right, right, right. Um, and it was available to everyone. Right, okay. so. Then it's just a matter of saying how much time and effort, and uh, are we going to invest in developing talents and building that out? Um, but even then, you know, it's it's. I wouldn't say we, we you know, right? when I look at the work we do at Data Profit. I don't say we're behind the rest of the world. Um, you know, we, we try and lead without thinking. We can lead if we want to, right? But we're not constrained to be behind in the world because of access to resources. I mean, unfortunately, the work we do is largely, you know, it's, it's software, it's algorithmic development. We do that with uh, hosted servers. As the world's gotten uh, more sophisticated with that technology, we've gained access to it. Right? And one of, one of the things I like presenting and I'm just using as a point here is if you look within the context of Amazon, as the, the company everyone knows, they've got an element called Amazon Web Services. Right. Uh, it provides servers to a lot of companies, a lot of the internet is hosted on it. Um, it's one of the largest profit centers, if not the largest profit center of Amazon. Right? AWS, the founding technology, is something that was built out of Cape Town. Um, and that's that team that takes it to the rest of the world, but it, it's the founding principle of a lot of uh, the founding kind of commercial elements of a lot of what we know in cloud computing was a technology developed locally. But right? we, we can, we aren't behind unless we think it. Right? <laughs>
1: I think that's such a powerful message, and I'm, if you'll indulge me, um, I'm very interested in any advice that you would give a young founder or a young person, or well, maybe even an older person looking to start a business in South Africa or, or starting to look into this space and, and to get involved in AI, machine learning, and, and so on.
0: There's a lot of good work available. Uh, to practice and learn on the internet. And I think coincidentally to the development of this new component of AI, a lot of uh, online courses became available. So uh, MOOCs, things like that. Um, and those are largely freely available. And then there's a set of competitions, right? And just points to practice upon. Right. Because what I like emphasizing here is just you know don't go into AI for the sake of AI machine learning for the sake of machine learning go and do a couple projects go and do compete on a couple competitions you don't have to come first it's not about winning it it's about enjoying that process of having gone through that Um, and once you've kind of gotten a couple of those under your belt then then say okay I want to build something in this space right I think that there's an importance in being certain that this is this is something you enjoy doing day in day out, because without that sense of purpose and that certainty and enjoyment of that, it, there will come times where it's going to be difficult just to keep going.
1: a Profit, you, you recently completed a six million USD Series A funding round uh, last year, I believe. Firstly, many congratulations where, where to from here what, what's what's in the future for for yourself and, and for the company?
0: Yes I mean that, that six million dollars is kind of a really vote of confidence in the team itself and some of the results the team has has achieved um, and kind of what we we look to achieve in the future as well. and I think from from our perspective we're looking to see our technology delivered into you know all of the, the large industrial centers across the world. Uh, even now, we begin our work in China and Japan. Uh, we extend our footprint in the U.S. Um, and with that, we, we, off the back of those results, we start building teams across the world to to help take our work to a global level. And that's the main main focus of of this funding and and our next couple of years.
1: And that's it for this week's episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast to make sure you don't miss out on the next one. If you'd like to help support the show, please do share with others and leave a rating and review. I've been your host Jared Lazar and this is the Breaking Out Podcast. Until next time. If you've listened to this podcast and you'd like to reach out and get in touch, You can email me at breakingoutpodcast at yahoo.com or at my personal email address, which is jaredlazar, one word, at gmail.com. That's J-A-R-E-D-L-E-S-A-R at gmail.com. For this week's episode, I had some help putting it together. My good friend Amy Carlson assisted with researching and preparing the show notes. Thanks for listening.